Again, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Paul, in this passage, is turning his attention to the Jews. I believe that you'll see at the end of Romans chapter 1, he's addressing, you might say, the pagan, idolatrous Gentile. In the first part of Romans chapter 2, he's addressing the moralistic Gentile. And now he turns his attention to speak directly again in this diatribe or in this form of conversation that he's writing out. He's now speaking to a Jew. We'll read the passage, but I'll read to you verse 24, which is the summation of what he says in this section. He says to the Jew, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The church and the Christian has always had moments of decline in which they fell away from the high ideals and truths that they professed. It happens all the time. You only have to look at your own life to see that's the case. I remember when I was probably about 13 years old and I read this passage for the first time. And I understood first that Paul was addressing his statement to the Jews. But when I read it, I also understood that he was addressing his statement to me. And he was addressing his statement to Christians. Although I wasn't critical of the nature of the church at the time. I grew up in a lovely church and everything and all my experiences of life in the church was wonderful and blessing and enriching to me. I didn't know of the kinds of different turmoil that can happen in churches full of people. I didn't know those things. I thought it was all wonderful. Yet, when I read that passage, I knew that the application of that passage was that it was possible for the church to conduct itself in such a way that God's name is dishonored. And I knew that it was possible for the Christian to live in such a way and conduct themselves in such a way that we could, I could, blaspheme the name of God. And knowing that I could potentially blaspheme the name of God before others and then not doing it were two totally different things. I could knew it was possible, but not to do it, not to find myself in a position where that's actually what I had done was another thing altogether, and that was something I learned a little bit later on in life. Oh, wait, I have. I am. I'm conducting myself in such a way that I'm dishonoring God. But the question we want to ask is, in order to avoid dishonoring God, who's called us, chose us, saved us, we have to understand how we get to that point. And so we know where not to go. And this passage that we're speaking of, if you were to go and look at how different individuals have approached this passage and spoke on this passage, you'll, you'll find that usually they address the issue of hypocrisy. And I, I think to some extent that's what's being addressed here. That idea, how do we avoid being hypocritical in our professions of faith? So let's look at the passage. I remind you again that Paul is turning here in verse 17, and he's now addressing the Jew. He's addressed, as I said, the idolatrous pagan in the last part of chapter 1 of Romans. He's identified the moral decay that comes upon those who will worship the creature instead of the creator, and how their images of their gods go from images of human beings, and then they become images of animals, and then they become images of slithering, crawling things that crawl upon their bellies. And then he shows how that way and that form and that degradation of worship also is expressed in the degradation of the morality so that eventually they're walling around and they're crawling around in the dirt on their bellies in the filth of their own depravity. And that's what's described at the end of Romans chapter 1. And then he turns his address to what I think is the moralist in the Roman world who knows enough to judge the right and wrong of the behavior of these 
pagans or the way they're behaving and they feel themselves as a result of recognizing that there is a right and wrong standard that they're somehow above the condemnation that comes upon those individuals justly and yet Paul says that by their judgment they simply prove that they know enough to be condemned themselves that they know enough of right and wrong to be answerable for their own judgments and that it doesn't make them innocent. It actually proves the basis upon which they're guilty because in some measure, maybe not to the extent these people are doing, but in some measure, they're doing the exact same things. And Paul begins to lay out and begins to bring the moralist under a sense of God's judgment as well. Remember, Paul is bringing individuals to the gospel, but to bring them fully to the gospel, he has to address all these different classes of people who have found their different basis for justifying themselves or ignoring the depth of their own sin. And now that he's basically laid out a judgment upon the moralist, he's encroached into the territory of the Jew himself, the religious Jew. Because the religious Jew can identify with the moralist and can appreciate their position. And the religious Jew, though, feels that he's one notch even above that. And so because he's just a bit above even the notch of the moralistic Gentile, he is obviously protected from judgment. Paul has kind of encroached into his territory and the Jew has begun to raise up his own protest. Certainly, he's outside of God's judgment, he thinks to himself. After all, he's one of God's chosen people. He has God's law. He has God's revelation of truth entrusted to him. He is actually, by God's design, an instructor and a teacher to all those others in the world of the truths and the reality of who God is. And he has positioned himself to keep himself separate from all of these as well in order that he might kind of undefiled begin to teach and instruct and be a standard for the rest of the world to bear out the witness of this one true monotheistic God. In fact... He's living in the midst of a pagan society that seems to be taking over the world in the midst of that pagan society that has, has given itself over to defiling religious practices where they worship demons and they engage themselves in ritual sexual immorality. Here is the Jew who has kept himself from all those things in the midst of all these polytheists. He's maintained the standard and the worship of the one true God. You can't suggest that he is under God's judgment. That's the idea. That's the thought that's coming through here. And Paul now is going to turn to this Jew who's counting his privileges and counting his position and protesting of his separation from the world as evidence that he stands apart from the threat of God's judgment. Paul acknowledges, by the way, and primarily you have to go to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 where Paul does this, but Paul will acknowledge the privileges of the Jew and the great position that God has given to them over all other people. He'll do this to some extent at the first part of Romans chapter 3 as well. And the basis upon which they've lived separate lives from the rest of the world. But here what Paul wants to teach them is that a good thing can become a bad thing when it's held as a self-vindicating or a self-justifying or a self-asserting thing. A good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the basis of you vindicating yourself and justifying yourself and asserting yourself and the self. So let's look at these. And the first thing I want us to do is, I just want us to look first at the privileges that the Jews had. And as we look at these verses, I want we to think of them first in the most positive light, as good as they are, and then consider how they can turn bad. Keep your Bibles held open to Romans chapter 2. Let's read verses 17 and 18. In fact, actually, let me read the whole passage. And then after we read the whole passage... We'll then look at these verses one at a time. So here's what it says in Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. Indeed, you're called a Jew, and rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, 
and know his will and approve of the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now, let's break this passage apart. Let's look at the privileges and the great position that God had given to the Jews and let's look at them as a good thing, but then let's consider how they go wrong. And Let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. And here we see the great privilege of the Jews. Indeed, it says, You are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve of things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. And let's take this and break this apart even more. Indeed, you call yourself a Jew. That's the first thing we want to look at. The name of a Jew, it's derived from the tribe of Judah. When Leah gave birth to her son Judah, it says she praised God. And his name basically means the praise or to give praise to. And when Jacob was blessing his sons, and his sons were brought before him in Genesis chapter 49, when he came to Judah, he blessed him, and he made his blessing conform to or expressive of his name, which means praise. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. This is what we read of the blessing that Jacob put upon his son Judah. He said to his son Judah, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Do you say that? Your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah's people would be the rulers and the kings of the nation. And the Messiah would come from him. And through him, all the nations would one day surrender in obedience to the Messiah. And here, this idea of being a Jew, that's name was derived from the word that means to be given praise or to be the object of praise was a glorious thing. They were to be the people of praise or to be praised because they were destined along with their Messiah to reign and rule over the nations. It was a glorious and wonderful destiny that was given to them that brought great gladness and a great sense of honor that was reflected in their name. And what I want you to do for a moment is I want you to see here that it's a good thing to take hold of the promises of God and the very names that He places upon you as expressions of what is yours and what you've inherited and what will be yours throughout all of eternity and to count them as a point at which you rise, you might say, out of the hardships and the difficulties and the low points of life to recognize that actually you have a tremendous standing in this world. The Bible says of the believer that we are a kingdom of priests to our God. 
The Bible tells us that one day we will follow in the train of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to rule over the nations. And this was the sense of anticipation that the Jew had in his own name. It's a sense of anticipation that we can have as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking to the church that is beginning to become embroiled in petty disputes with one another. And then they're going to courts, secular courts, to solve their cases. And Paul is telling them that they ought to take care of this kind of business within their own house. That ought to be something that takes place within the house and the household of faith. And he tells them one of the reasons for that is that they are one day going to be sitting in judgment over the nations. And if they're going to be sitting one day over the judgment over the nations, should they not be able to handle these little issues among themselves instead of going to secular courts? Actually, let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 along this thought. He's trying to raise them up to a standard of practice in the way that they live their lives among themselves based upon what is waiting for them ahead of them. Here's what he says in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? That's it's kind of good to keep in mind. When life gets hard, when it gets difficult, when you become subject to injustices, to remember that one day you're going to sit with Christ in judgment over the nations, that you're going to be with Him when the nations stream to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow before Him, giving praise to Him, and that praise will flow over from His throne upon His people, upon us. The Jews knew that. They knew that that was their inheritance. It was a part of their very names. They were the destined and chosen people of God for praise. It's not wrong to exult in the name of promise that God has given you. But, but, big, big exception here. Be careful how you hold on to that name. It's like a title has been given to us. A wonderful title has been given to us. But you can hold on to it wrongly and as a result you can begin to feel entitled in the middle of the world. As if things were owed to you. And you use the name to assert yourself. The name itself reveals the mercy of God upon us and the grace of God upon us. The mercy of God restraining his judgment upon us. The grace of God giving to us what we don't deserve. But if you find in the title a note of superiority over others, a reason to gloat in condescension over those who are now ruling the age in which you live, it can become a self-asserting thing. It can become a thing in which you begin to develop an air of condescension. You know, they say that condescension is the last bastion of losers. And the Jews had been for centuries pushed further and further to the edge of society. They'd been losing out over and over again in the political machinations of the world. They were put to the side when powers were rising up and other powers were rising up. But oh, did they have condescension in spades. You know, they held on to the sense that we're the titled people. We're the people that are going to rule one day. And they took from that position a position of condescension among those that they lived among. And the very society that had pushed them out to the extremities. And the Christian can do the exact same thing. We can look at the changes that are happening in the world and around us. We can see the space that's taking place that more and more we're becoming disenfranchised from the places of influence and power and then in order to sue ourselves, we just claim our name as a 
basis on which we can feel better than everybody else and we can look upon everybody else with a sense of condescension. And when that happens, a good thing becomes a bad thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing. Here's another one. It says they rested on the law. They were called Jews and you rest on the law. God gave his law on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. And when God gave it, the people rejoiced. It was the moral law that taught them how they were to live and conduct themselves in the worship of God, but it was more than just the moral law. The law that God gave at Mount Sinai was also the law of sacrifice. It was the ritual law in which they came to God, and when they sinned against the moral law, they had a way to still come to the presence of God and worship Him because there was a system of sacrifice that was set up so that they could seek God's atonement for their sins by the offering of sacrifices and the hope that even though they broke that law, they could come and be in the presence of that God and God established the way in which they were to come before Him and God established the very place in which they were to come in order to offer that sacrifice. In a sense, what you see here is there was not only in the law that God gave at Mount Sinai a moral law, but there were the rules or standards by which the gospel, the good news, was real to them. The way in which they're forgiven, the way in which they're cleansed, the way in which they have access to God, it was written within the gospel itself. It was a good thing to rejoice in and to rely upon and to rest in. But the Jews that Paul was addressing took that law and they made a facade out of it. Instead of being God's way of turning them to himself and the way by which he provided a sacrifice when they broke the moral laws so that their sins could be forgiven and they could come into his holy presence and worship him, it became a way in which they would just follow these rules and these standards and these rituals to save themselves by their own efforts. It became a way in which they could, when they sinned, cover their sins by some ritual so that they could go on sinning and do it all over again. Just covering their tracks, at the same time feeling good about themselves. And for the Christian, the gospel can become the same kind of law that we put up as a facade that we live behind. We think things like, I can live for myself, I can fall into sin, I can make and plan and choose to do this thing that I know is wrong and not right, I can fail and it's okay because I'll just pray a prayer. I'll remind myself that I was already forgiven in Jesus Christ. And as a result, I make this plan not out of a sense of great wonder or a great sense of gratitude and a great sense of surrender and submission to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but as a superstitious way of justifying myself and washing my hands for another day in which I live for myself. Kind of become like the mobster, you know, who basically carries on his business and carries on his trade and bilks money from other individuals but makes sure that he doesn't miss mass so that he can go back at it the next week. He do the exact same thing. And so the gospel itself, a wonderful and good thing, like the law that was given to the Jews on Mount Sinai, becomes a bad thing. Becomes a bad thing. Here's what it says next. It says, you make your boast in God. You make your boast in God. Now, the idea here is that they're rejoicing in a unique relationship that they have with God. Jeremiah actually gives directions to the Jews on how they approach God with this idea that their boast is in Him and their relationship to Him. Take your Bibles and go to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Keep your finger in Romans 2. We'll go back there. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah writes this to the Jews. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, 
that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. What a wonderful thing to glory in. What a wonderful thing to boast in, but to have and to know and to have this deep, abiding, growing relationship with the God, the God of all kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. That's what they're told to make as their boast, the thing that they find a sense of personal triumph in. And Actually, we're kind of directed towards the same idea in the New Testament. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, that I have determined to glory in nothing else except the cross of Jesus Christ. I glory in that thing that has brought me into relationship with God, that has provided a forgiveness for all of my sins. That's what I boast in. That's what I build my life from. Well, that's a wonderful thing to boast about. The other day, I think Greg said that he preferred the 1984 version of the NIV. And it's not available. It isn't. You can't go online and find it. Unless you find an old one at a bookstore, you can't find it. But it's got a proper translation of this verse. In the NIV from 1984, instead of it saying that you boast in God, it says you brag about your relationship with God. You brag about your relationship with God. That's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when you think that it gives you impunity in how you live. You end up becoming like a brat of a wealthy man who lives in the community who gets pulled over by a police officer when caught speeding, and he says to the police officer, do you know who my daddy is? A good thing becomes a bad thing. It entitles you in any way. We as Christians often say that we're not religious, but instead we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's a proper description. That's a right way of describing what salvation brings to us. We're reconciled from our sins and our alienation with God in order that we might live with Him and be with Him. But if you're going to rest in a relationship, you better honestly check to make sure that you have a relationship, that you know God, that the pursuit of your life is to know Him and to study Him and to discover Him. And God did not save you to have a remote relationship with Him where having received salvation, you go back into your corner of the world to live and do whatever you want to do and to pursue whatever you want to pursue. And then every once in a while, when things get a little hairy and a little uncomfortable, you come back and make a little touchstone to say, well, you know, but I'm a child of God. Oh, God saved you for a deep and profound relationship, a deep, knowing, growing relationship with Him. He saved you to Himself. So to claim a relationship with Him, and yet then not stand in relationship with Him, makes a mockery of the provision he made for that relationship. It makes a mockery of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. It's failing to boast in God. It's failing to glory in his cross. And so a good thing becomes a bad thing for you. Let's look at the next thing here. It says, you know his will and you prove of the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. The Jew from their youth were catechized in the teaching of the law of the Torah. He felt that he knew the law and he knew what was important in the law, and he knew what was essential or excellent for life as a result of studying the law. He was quite confident that not only did he know the right doctrines and the right way in which to live and the right way in which to express that life, he actually was quite given to words. To him, words were very important. He wasn't a sloppy thinker. Instead, he was astute and careful in stipulating and expressing what it was he believed and understood to be essential for a life from the word He knew what people needed. He knew what God was teaching. 
And yet, as a result of that, he, he developed a kind of theological self-importance. He had the idea that, that he could rest in his head knowledge and that somehow what he knew transferred as a credit to himself. There's a lot of arrogance in theological seminaries, just to let you know, right? There's a lot of arrogance that takes place when young Christian men get together late at night to debate theological topics and they push it around. And, and as they talk about it, I, I, still today, the longer you delve into a theological conversation with one another, you can almost feel your chest swelling as you carry on the conversation. You almost feel like your head is expanding and... Well, it's not wrong. It's actually a good thing, I think. It's right. I wish more people would debate these topics and carry them on as points of conversation in the night with their friends. It's not all wrong, but it's dangerous. <laughs> it's really dangerous. Right thinking, right doctrine, right knowledge alone, without a right surrender, without a right submission, without a right claiming by faith, and clinging to the grace and mercy that comes to us through Jesus Christ alone will lead you into a sense of smug self-righteousness where a good thing becomes a bad thing. The Lord Jesus telling the parables in Matthew chapter 6 talked about the statement. He says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the great and wonderful truths that God has given to us that are expressive of his sovereign rule over life and the wonderful way in which he's brought to us undeservingly his salvation become the basis of our pride and our arrogance. How dark those very things become to ourselves. So we should be warned. Those were the privileges of the Jude. Quickly, let me pivot and show you what their position was. Because they didn't just have a great privilege, they also were second given a great position. They had been raised up by God to be His ambassadors as instructors of salvation to the world and as law to the world, and it was a good thing. But they'd allowed this position to make them smug in their sense of being the learned, instructing the ignorant. If you begin to think yourself approved because you know more than those that you're teaching that don't know as much as you know. You begin to feel superior by right of that instruction. And a good thing, again, becomes bad. Look what it says here in verses 19 and 20. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, that might be their witness to the Gentile pagan society, and an instructor to the foolish, and a teacher of babes. Now there is their discipleship and raising up of others as they come into the faith having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. They have this confidence in themselves. And the point here is that it is a great responsibility when God gives us these wonderful privileges and it places upon us a wonderful role before the world. We are given a position like the Jew has before the world to present the truths of the gospel and God's saving message to the world. It's true for the Jew in their day. It's true for us today. But how often have those who teach and preach and position themselves as leaders and instructors fallen and with their fall dishonored the name of Jesus Christ? How often it happens. It's not hard for us to recognize. You can go into the magazines or go into the newsprint almost any week and find the stories and recount the stories of these failures that bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, I think what happened was this, that something good went terribly wrong 
These individuals wrap themselves in their mission, in their placement, in their position, in their instruction, in their teaching, and in the words and in the thoughts that they were communicating for their own sake. But they never personally surrendered to those words themselves. They gave it as a point of influence in their life. But they never fell under and surrendered to it themselves. They projected themselves on the outward forms of these truths to give them a sense of significance and importance. And they wrote it out. But they did not come and bow down in full surrender at the cross of the Savior. And so find all their glory in the cross. Out of this self-vindicating, self-asserting that comes out of the great privileges that should humble us and the great positions that we have that again should cast us upon God and humble us if we don't allow them to take us that place but instead it fills us with our own sense of position and honor and I'm above it all. Well, then what comes as a result of that? Well, what comes it is a blasphemous testimony to those who are looking on from the outside. They see a life that's not consistent with what we profess. So look what it says here now. Go to verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who you make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Look at that passage. All right, I know what theft is. I recognize adultery. I know what that is. But I don't really know what it means by this robbing temples. So let's look at that one. The Jews were so against idolatry in any way and the defilement that came through false worship that they had set up a whole level and standard of laws in order to keep them from coming in contact with these idolaters when they were coming and going from their idols and from their idol worship in order they might keep themselves undefiled from all the world that surrounded them and all this idolatrous worship that was around them. But Paul is indicating that some of these same Jews who bent over backwards to show that they were keeping themselves unstained from the idolatrous temples were at night sneaking into those temples and robbing the offerings that people were leaving in the temple to their gods and bringing it home at night. Now you might say, well, he's just using that as a metaphor. He's maybe just exaggerating. But if you go to Acts chapter 19, there's a story in Ephesus where the people rose up in revolt against the message that Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And they were causing such a stir that the city clerk had to come and try to calm them down. And the city clerk says this to them in verse 35 of Acts chapter 19. Here's what we read. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? They're idolaters. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and do not do anything rash. They were about ready to go into a citywide revolt. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. I guess it was going on. People were actually sneaking into the temple that they reviled as stained and at night they were robbing things. Why not? They're not really gods. Our God is the God. and That's what Paul was being accused of or at least it was being suggested and saying, no, that didn't happen. They've not done anything to dishonor our idols and what they're saying to us. Hmm. What does that mean? What is it revealing? Well, somehow there's 
an attitude that begins to develop an individual in which they, they can actually, in that attitude, feel that it covers them from because they are privileged and because of their great position and because of the great honor they give themselves. It covers them and they're okay and it's a cloak from which they can do things that they shouldn't be doing. You know, most people look at this passage and they say, well, Paul is kind of exaggerating. He's giving an extreme position here, but he's using it in order to kind of draw attention to people that are maybe doing sins that are more minor. They're not doing those types of things, but he's just intimating that it's along the same line. But I think actually Paul knows that this kind of behavior is taking place. And many of those peoples and those individuals who are protesting that they're beyond God's judgment because they're religious and good Jews. Paul knows it because he had been a religious and good Jew himself. And he had clothed himself in all this kind of behavior. And he knew what happened behind the surface. He knew how people used those things to position themselves in order to do things that were not right. And he's warning against their trajectory that they're on. I'm inclined to believe that Paul knew this was exactly the kind of thing that many Jews were engaged in. The outward boast and forms had been maintained, but little by little, they had fallen into patterns of behavior that led them into gross sin, to the point where they were stealing, committing adultery, sneaking into pagan temples at night to loot them. How did they get there? Well, you know, when a person commits adultery, we say, oh, they've fallen into adultery. A person gets caught cheating on his taxes or embezzling at his business and he's fallen into... You know, you don't fall into those things. You land in those things. You got there by a series of compromises all along the way. Compromises in which you thought you had some sense of entitlement, some sense of impunity that you could wrap yourself in your Christian name and God would forgive you because the gospel had become a facade behind which you hid while you pursued your own self-interest. And eventually, what you really believed in, what you were really living for, shows up in the worst kind of behavior. Because you're in that path. Praise God that He lets those things show up so you can see what you really are without Him. And slowly, begin living for yourself and eventually you land in a place where a great sin brings great dishonor and blasphemy to the name of the Christ that you've professed. Let me read to you three points of application. This comes from a sermon that I probably preached a couple of years ago. Number one, don't mistake full-headed intellectual delights in the wonder of the Christian faith and truth for a full-hearted surrender to Christ. Just because you know it, just because you believe it, just because you can state it, just because you can even argue for it, doesn't mean you've surrendered to it. Don't mistake the sentimental stirrings at the beauty of the gospel for a self-emptying, Christ-filling work of grace that God brings to those who've surrendered to that gospel and given their life to Jesus Christ. You can come to church and you can sing songs and you can get pretty excited. You can get pumped up, maybe not in our church as much. But you can be pumped up by the music. It can be exhilarating and thrilling and, well, in our church too. You can develop a sentimental, just, preference for the style. And it can bring back to you all kinds of good heart-warming memories. And you can feel touched by the Spirit. But it's just your own Spirit kind of laying itself over the sentimentality of these things. And it can warm you. And it can bless you in a sense. But that doesn't mean you've emptied your life to Christ. You've surrendered and said, Lord, I believe and trust in you alone and I give myself in complete surrender. 
Just because a person is intellectually, emotionally, and willfully committed to asserting the truths of Christianity, being a part of an argument, or defending it, or standing for it, and getting into the middle of the political debate of our ages, does not mean that they've surrendered at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus. They may only be projecting themselves upon the surface of these truths for their own sense of self-importance, for their own self-asserting ways, much like the Jews projected themselves upon the law of God for their own sense of self-worth. We've got to surrender to these things. We have to see that it's not enough for us to know that we can blaspheme God, but we have to know how we get there. I'll end by sharing with you the story of how God dealt with me as a young man. Part of my testimony is that I knew that I wasn't going to excel as the smartest kid in class, and I wasn't certainly going to excel as the best athlete, and I decided I was going to excel at something, so I was going to be the best Christian. I was going to read my Bible more than anybody else. I was going to follow all the rules and do all the right things, and I was going to live in all the right way, and I was going to lift up the standard, and I was going to hold it up before other kids and tell them that's how they're supposed to live as well, particularly kids who profess to be Christians. I did. I read my Bible every single day. I had a, a little rule. If I felt like I should read my Bible, I'd stop doing whatever I'd do, and I'd read my Bible. And you know, that'll interrupt a lot of things in your life, right? And so, but I thought, all right, well, I'll, I'll let it interrupt me. I'll read my Bible. Probably between 8th and ninth grade, I read the Bible all the way through from beginning to end. And read it through and was, well, I was, in my mind, excelling at being a really good Christian. And I can remember, my mother could probably remember this, how arrogant I was getting. I can remember on one occasion in which I was sitting next to a couple young girls that were going to sing a duet during the service, and they were called to come forward to sing, and I was on the aisle on the outside, and I could, I could have just stepped out and let them walk out, but instead I stepped out and I pivoted in front of the whole congregation, looked at everybody in the eye, and then I sat back down, because I was sitting at the front, and I was a good Christian. <laughs> then, <laughs> it's embarrassing to say how pride takes hold of your life when you think you're doing the right thing and you're adding it up as a credit to yourself compared to others. One night at a church meeting that we were at, an old man by the name of Bill Berg was coming and preaching. I was sitting right at the front and I was praying because some of my friends were sitting in the back and I was praying that they would repent. You know, that they'd see the truth and they'd give their life to God like I'd given my life to God and in the middle of my prayer, something strange happened to me. I had a vision of hell. It was dark and ugly and deep and it was unending and it was just this endless depth of futility and lostness and it was, it was like a, I tell people it was like a Salvador Dali picture that was just repeating itself over and over again in some endless progression of meaninglessness. And I, in my prayer, it was just in my mind, I, I said, oh God, I, I cannot bear the sight of the hell that my friends are going to. Please take that from my mind. And immediately God answered back to me and said, that's not hell. That's your own proud, sinful heart. And oh, I began to weep. I had blasphemed and dishonored the name of my God, thinking that I was better than others because of how religious and how committed I was to my faith. Surrender to him. Bow to him. Recognize that all that you have or ever will have be is because of the complete and utter mercy and grace of God to an undeserving sinner. Don't use your faith as a covering and a cloak 
for your own self-assertion. It may be that you're asserting yourself in your religious superiority, but it'll take you in the wrong direction. It will lead you further and further into sin. Unless you come before him and say, I'll boast in nothing else but Jesus and the cross where he died for my sins. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, what we pray is that you would keep us and you would guard us from the hypocrisy that takes the glorious and wonderful and good things that you've brought to us and use it as a basis of asserting ourselves, of ascending in a position of superiority over others, a position of which we consider ourselves as better than, more deserving than, further along than them. Though, God, when that attitude comes, we're not on the ascent, we're on the decline. To learn and discover of you how glorious and how wonderful it is. May we not lose out on the exhilaration of the experience of living for you and obeying you and following you. It is exciting and it is heady. But, oh God, as you bring us into those experiences, let us always remember it is grace and mercy. Apart from you, there is in us no good thing. Our glory and our boast is in Jesus Christ alone. And we want to follow him in the life he lived, humbling himself to serve those that you sent him to, in order that he might redeem them to himself. Let that be our attitude. Let that be our disposition and mindset. So may we ever glorify you and boast in you alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.